Psalm 122, a song of ascents of David. I was glad when they said to me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem is built as a city that is compact together, where the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, to the testimony of Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. For thrones are set there for judgment, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper who love you. Peace be within your walls, prosperity within your palaces. For the sake of my brethren and companions, I will now say peace be within you. Because of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. All right, here we go. We're still in Ruth. I wish we'd almost never get out of Ruth. I'm loving this so much. But we're in Ruth uh, 3, 14 through 18 today. Five verses. Um, it's entitled uh, Shesh Siorim, or Six Measures of Barley. So verse 14. So she lay at his feet until morning, and she arose before one could recognize another. Then he said, do not let it be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. Also, he said, bring the shawl that is on you and hold it. And when she held it, he measured six epaws of barley and laid it on her. Then she went into the city. When she came to her mother-in-law, she said, is that you, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her. And she said, these six epaws of barley he gave me. For he said to me, do not go empty handed to your mother-in-law. Then she said, sit still, my daughter, until you know how the matter will turn out. For the man will not rest until he has concluded the matter this day. I'll tell you something. And I guarantee you that my brother back there will agree with me. My mother will probably agree as well. And anybody else that's ever met him. The hardest working person that I have ever known in my entire life is actually my own uncle. My guess is that every person who has ever met him and seen him work will agree that this is true. We all know someone who is very exceptional at what they do. I've got the smartest human being in the world on the planet right now sitting right in front of me. He's exceptional at what he does, no doubt about it. They may be restless to get at their work every single day too, but even the hardest worker would literally stagger and fall when working by this guy's side. He was never a big guy, ever. He was about my size his whole life, and over the years he's wizened up, and so now he's much smaller than me. He's probably about 120 or so pounds. But the work effort that he puts out today in his late 70s is more than most people could ever put out in the prime of their life. He lives on a mountain, which was once a town where people that made charcoal settled. And eventually what they did is they cut down all of the trees, all of them in the entire area, and so the charcoal business disappeared. The town remained, though, but it, re it still has no more than about 50 people in it to this day. And those are 50 people that live there year-round. You know, during the summer, more move in. But it's a very small town. As a matter of fact, it's the smallest township in the state of Massachusetts. Over the years, though, something happened. All of the trees grew back. Some now, a couple, you know, 100, 150 years later, are astonishingly big. And every year, the forest gets thicker and thicker. And that's why I go up, take one week a year, and I help my father clear out the forest and get firewood for him. But this is the way that things go. We cut down, and God puts it back up. I remember talking to my uncle one time when I was a bit younger, and uh, this is uh, when I was talking to him, loggers, when he was younger, started coming back to the mountain, and they started looking at this big timber that had grown back, and he said this to me. He said, Charlie, I can't stand hearing them come and hearing those chainsaws work. He said, this is our mountain, and I can take care of it. 
And then he told me, but you know what? Afterwards, I realized that nobody could take care of every single thing that pops out of the ground up here. It just isn't possible. There is enough work to go around. So he modified his thinking. We cut and the Lord replaces. The wounds of our abuse fade into memory and the earth is designed to put out more trees which make more forests. It seems as if, as if it's a never-ending cycle of work. Actually, it's futility. The work never ceases. There is no time when true rest can come about, at least not in the sense of freedom from the bondage of our labors. We're a prisoner for our need for staying ahead, of having stores of food, of taking care of, care of roofs that leak, of roads that need to be repaved, whatever. However, this was not the way that it was originally intended to be. Instead of working in the garden, we were placed there to serve and to worship God. Soon enough, though, we were expelled from the garden, but at the same time, we were given the hope of returning some day, some wondrous day to that restful place in that contented state. The law of Moses actually gives us snapshots of that lost seventh day and the reclaiming of it. The book of Ruth uses those snapshots in an interesting way to point us to the one who offers us the true rest that we lost so very long ago. And that takes us to our text verse today, which is Hebrews 4, verse 4. For he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. Today's five verses contain a short set of words which have always puzzled me. Every time I've read them, they've puzzled me. Ve'yamad shesh seorim, and measured six of barley. I thought about them every single time that I came to them. Every single time, reading the Bible again and again, every time I got to those words, I'd say, why? But it never came clear to me why God included that particular phrase in there. I knew, though, that someday I'd get around to taking the time and, and thinking it through. That time came as I began typing the sermon about seven weeks ago. And because of the insights of other people, which I'm very grateful for, and some of my own personal thoughts, because I literally lay in bed for almost seven weeks or, you know, since uh, Ruth won, so we're in Ruth, uh, this is our 10th sermon, whatever it is. All of those weeks I was thinking about these particular uh, verses. But with those thoughts, I was thankful to the Lord for finally opening them up to me. And we're going to start to open them up to you today as well. Eventually, the whole story of Ruth and why it's included in the Bible will be revealed. And yes, it points to the work of Jesus. All of it. This wonderful little book, which is contained within the marvelous larger book we call the Holy Bible, is replete with details about him because he is the center and the focus of all of it. It's all to be found in his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again. And may God speak to us through his word today. And may his glorious name ever be praised. I have two thoughts for you today. The first is Shesh Siorim, six of barley. It's verses 14 and 15. Verse 14 says, So she lay at his feet until morning. Now whether awake or asleep, but surely not asleep, Ruth continued to lay in the same spot through the rest of the night. The Hebrew here is the same as it has been three times already in the same chapter. It literally says that she lay at the places of his feet. There, awaiting the daylight, her mind probably went around and around about what occurred the next day. The name of her dead husband would be raised up. She was given that promise. But through who? She probably thought through every possibility and every contingency that would arise, even with her limited knowledge of the actual circumstances ahead. 
The kindness that Boaz had shown to her must have made her heart yearn for that nearer kinsman to refuse the offer. No matter what his age was, no matter what his wealth was, no matter what his position in the society was, she had the certainty of Boaz's actions. In another person, she would only have uncertainty. Matthew Henry, always one to look for Christological significance in a passage, beautifully relays words to us for, to consider in this uh, particular verse. He says, This narrative may encourage us to lay ourselves by faith at the feet of Christ. He is our nearer kinsman, having taken our nature upon him. He is the right to redeem. Let us seek to receive from him his directions. In like manner to those words for us, Ruth lay herself at the feet of Boaz and awaited his directions. Even to this day, we use this same terminology for obtaining instruction from one who is wiser than ourselves. To sit at the feet of someone indicates either a reverential fear of or a desire to learn from that person. It is the place of submission and even servitude. And this is where Ruth spent the rest of her night, certainly pondering how the events of the next day would unfold. Verse 14 continues, And she arose before one could recognize another. At the earliest of light on the horizon, she arose, or literally stood up. The intent was to depart before the shadows turned into recognizable faces. The Hebrew here, instead of before one could recognize another, more appropriately says, before a man could recognize his friend. Without a verbal greeting, there would only be this unrecognizable shape passing by. The early departure was a necessary precaution to preserve the integrity of both Ruth and Boaz. Ruth, because she was an unmarried woman, and Boaz, so that the events of the coming day would not seem tainted by pre-planning in order to deceive or to manipulate what would transpire. Verse 14 goes on. Then he said, Do not let it be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. In this, the New King James Version translation is just right. Most translations say, A, woman. Look at your Bible and see what it says. The word has a definite article in front of it. It says, it literally says, Ha-isha, the woman. Do not let it be known that the woman came. Now, this might not sound overly important, but it has caused a lot of conversation and speculation by scholars over the past 2,500 years or so. And if they're confused about this, then obviously it's an important thing for us to consider. Because of the wording, some have speculated that this was something that he had said to his hired hands and not to Ruth. But that isn't supported by the account because she came secretly. It would involve inserting something that is not indicated elsewhere. Others suppose that he said this in a prayer to God. He kind of just stopped and said it to God as if he were petitioning God to keep the matter secret. Now, if this were the case, the Bible would have certainly said that he said in his heart or that he said to God because it does that all the time in the Bible. Again, it is inserting an idea here which is forced. In the next verse, it will say, and he said, when speaking to Ruth. In other words, it is one continuous conversation with her, not with his workmen and not in a prayer to God. Therefore, the term the woman is used in a particular way by Boaz to meet a particular purpose, and it makes a particular picture for us. What it logically indicates is that he is speaking to Ruth about Ruth, you Ruth. Do not let it be known that the woman, meaning you, Ruth, came to the threshing floor. He's concerned about her integrity being stained and possibly about the perception of him being in collusion with Ruth 
concerning the matter before it was settled. In his words to her, as recorded in the Bible, he has acted rightly, fairly, and in a judicious manner. We saw that last week. Everything he did in propriety. There was nothing wrong about what he had done. He has acknowledged that there is a kinsman closer than he and that that kinsman must be given the first opportunity to accept or decline that right of redemption. And this then leads to the contingency that he might accept that right. If he did, and he later found out that Ruth had been with Boaz, he could assume, although incorrectly, that they had been intimate. And this, in turn, would reflect negatively on both of them. There is an order and a propriety which Boaz had ensured would be followed so that all was done according to the law. In this, we see a picture of Christ who came in a proper fashion to redeem those who were under the law. He did not circumvent the law, but he worked within the parameters of the law to redeem his people. This is what's going on with Boaz saying these words to Ruth, the woman. Paul explains this about Christ in Galatians 4, verse 4. But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. If you substitute Boaz for Jesus and Ruth for Gentile believers, you can get a better understanding of the point I'm making here. The Bible scholar, a guy named John Lang, describes the actions of Boaz as follows. It would have been very unpleasant to Boaz to have people connect himself with any woman in a suspicious way. But scandalous rumors of this kind with Ruth for their object would have been exceedingly injurious, to say nothing of the fact that an undeserved stain would have been fixed on the good name of Ruth. It would have rendered it very difficult for him to prosecute her claims in Bethlehem. Now think of Christ not fulfilling the law. It would have been very difficult for him to prosecute his claims that he has a right to us, wouldn't it? It would have been impossible. So this is what the term, the woman, is trying to tell us here. As I said, there's an order and there's a propriety which Boaz is adhering to based on the law and the customs of the people. Likewise, the same was found in Christ. He came under the law and he fulfilled the law in order to redeem us from that. Thus, God is both just and he is the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ Jesus. When the fullness of the time had come about, God sent forth his son, our Lord Jesus, born of a woman, born under the law, not without, to do something wonderfully marvelous for us, to redeem those who under the law do trod, that we might receive adoption as sons of God. And because you are sons adopted in this way, God has the spirit of his son sent forth into your hearts so that you can more than say, yes, even crying out, Abba, Father, in this new birth. Verse 15, also he said, bring the shawl that is on you and hold it. Before her departure, Boaz makes a gesture that is intended, as we will see, for Naomi. He asks for Ruth's shawl, because the word for shawl here, which is mitpachat, is used only two times in the Bible, once here and once in Isaiah chapter 3 in a different context, its meaning isn't sure. And so it's translated in a variety of ways. So your Bible might say veil or shawl or cloak or garment or cape or mantle or covering or something else. It is something other than her dress. Rather, it was a garment either over her head, over her shoulders, or maybe tied around her waist that could be used for any such purpose or any other purpose. Now this word mitpachat comes from another word, which is tafach, which is used only twice in scripture as well. 
This word tafach means to bear, such as in having children. We see this in Lamentations 2, where it says, You have invited as to a feast day the terrors that surround me. In the day of the Lord's anger, there was no refugee or survivor. Those whom I have borne, that word tafach, and brought up, my enemies have destroyed. And tafach can also mean to spread out, such as in these words from Isaiah chapter 48. It says, Indeed, my hand has laid the foundation of the earth, and my right hand has stretched out tafach, the heavens. When I call to them, they stand up together. So to bear children implies the spreading out of a family. The stretching out of the heavens demonstrates God's sovereign, all-powerful, and eternal attributes. By understanding this root word, translators can determine at least partly the type of garment. It would be like a shawl capable of spreading out. Now, I know that might sound uninteresting. Why do I need to know that? But the reason why I say things like that is because different translations vary. And you say, well, that's not what it says here. They don't know what the word means. And so I'm trying to explain to you that it is something that actually spreads out, whether it's over her shoulders, over her head, or whatever. And that's important because of what's coming up. Verse 15 continues, And when she held it, he measured six epaws of barley. The word epaw is not in the original, okay? Just so you know that. It's been inserted here by the New King James translators, but the impossibility of their translation is astonishing. How they could have missed that, I don't know. An epaw equates to about a bushel of wheat. One epaw or one bushel would be as much as Ruth could carry in a basket, just as she did at the end of the first day of labor in the fields, which was back in verse 217. Unless Ruth was as large as a cow and equally strong, there is no way she could carry six epaws of barley. It's doubtful that Boaz wanted to see this woman dragging a shawl full of barley the size of a recliner behind her on the way home that morning. So we can ignore that translation, okay? The next Hebrew measure down from an epaw is known as a siah. Six siahs would equal two epaws, which is still an amount far too much for her to carry unless she went and worked out at Golda's gym every single morning on a regular basis, right? Some translations say six measures. Some say six scoops, and some say six units. Each of these is vague enough to let us know that six of some particular but unknown measure was put into her shawl. The unit of measure, though, is not what is significant here. There are three separate and distinct points of importance to consider. The first is why he gave her the barley. The answer is twofold. First, if she were to go home and she was walking freely wearing her best shawl, right, and she was seen, someone could make a supposition that she had been out all night long doing something, whatever that something might be, and it might not be something good that they supposed that she was doing. So instead, she would appear far less suspicious if she had a sack full of grain, okay? They could even suppose that she worked so late that night that she fell asleep working. Thus, her image would only be improved, not diminished. The second reason is that this is a gift for Naomi. She is the one who stood in relation to Ruth as a parent, and so she would have to consent to any marriage. One scholar of the past, a guy named S.A. Cook, shows that this was a cultural norm that goes back all the way as far as the Code of Hammurabi. The widowed mother was the one who was approached by the intending bridegroom. This is actually a right analogy for what's being pictured here in relation to Christ and the church. And that brings us to the second and third major points to consider, and one which has caused me to stop and ask why every single time that I have read these books over the past many years. And something that Rhoda actually called me about one day, 
Charlie, why does it say this? So she's asking the Bible questions as she's reading. That's what we all should be doing. Why six measures and why barley? The Bible specifically gives the number, even though it doesn't tell us the size of the measure. What is it about the number six and what is it about barley rather than wheat? Because she stayed through the barley and the wheat harvest, as we saw earlier. Why is it that? What is it the Bible is trying to tell us? The number six, always go back to Bollinger. According to E.W. Bollinger, who I cite sermon after sermon, he is the standard for understanding numbers in the Bible. He says this, it has to do with man. It is the number of imperfection, the human number, the number of man as destitute of God, without God, without Christ. As he goes on to say, it is certain that man was created on the sixth day, and thus he has the number six impressed upon him. Moreover, six days were appointed for him for his labor, while one day is associated in sovereignty with the Lord God and his rest. Insightful as ever, Bullinger rightly tied the number six in with the labors, and at the end of the labors, there is the anticipation of the Lord God and his rest. It is exactly what Naomi was seeking for Ruth, and thus implicitly for herself through Ruth. One cannot enter rest until the work is done. And so Bollinger gives one more thought to consider concerning the number six. Six, therefore, is the number of labor also, of man's labor, as apart and distinct from God's rest. True, it marks the completion of creation as God's work, and therefore the number is significant of secular completeness. And this is actually spoken of in the Law of Moses. So we're going to take a moment and we're going to read two passages right from the law. One is from Exodus and the other is from Deuteronomy to show us insights into this demonstration of labor resulting in rest. The first is from Exodus 23. Six years you shall sow your land and gather in its produce, but the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave the beasts of the field may eat. In like manner you shall do with your vineyard and your olive grove. Six days you shall do your work, and on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may rest, and the son of your female servant and the stranger may be refreshed. And then from Deuteronomy 15, it says this, If your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you and serves you six years, then in the seventh year you shall let him go free from you. And when you send him away free from you, you shall not let him go away empty-handed. You shall supply him liberally from your flock, from your threshing floor, and from your winepress. From what the Lord your God has blessed you with, you shall give to him. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this thing today. And if it happens that he says to you, I will not go away from you because he loves you in your house since he prospers with you, then you shall take an all and thrust it through his ear to the door, and he shall be your servant forever. Also to your female servant you shall do likewise. It shall not seem hard to you when you send him away free from you, for he has been worth a double hired servant in serving you six years. Then the Lord your God will bless you in all that you do. In an astute observation, Lang gives us these words to consider what uh, concerning what this is showing us. Naomi receives what she may take as an intimation that the time has come when after long labor, she must let Ruth go out free. The day of rest is at hand. 
if we see this in relation to the fullness of times when Christ came, then our relationship to him through his work, we can see the reason for the six measures, all pointing to the work of Christ. That explains the number six. But why the barley? The reason for specifying barley is because of what barley pictures. First, it is a picture of the resurrection of Christ because barley was what was presented at the Feast of First Fruits. Leviticus 23 gives the following instructions concerning this feast. This is from the Feast of First Fruits instructions. And the Lord said to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land which I give you and reap its harvest, then you shall bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. The first harvest is the barley harvest. The first sheaf was from the first crop to mature the barley harvest. And Paul in the New Testament shows us that this feast was fulfilled in Christ's resurrection. He says this in 1 Corinthians, But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ the first fruits, afterward those who are Christ's at his coming. Barley also, as we saw in a previous Ruth sermon, and I want to reiterate this so you remember it, it's known as the crop of hairy ears because of its hairy appearance. The word barley in Hebrew is seora, which is closely related to the word se'ar or hair. Hair in the Bible indicates an awareness of things, particularly that of sin. The goat, for example, which is used in Leviticus for the sin offering is known as sa'ir, very closely related word. We have an awareness of sin in the hairy goat sin offering. In Numbers, there's a type of person known as a Nazarite. Okay, it's not a Nazarene, it's a Nazarite. This is someone who made a vow or who was consecrated to the Lord. During the time of that vow, they were never, never to cut their hair. We have the story of Samson. He was a Nazarite from birth, as were Samuel and John the Baptist. Paul, in the book of Acts, took a Nazarite vow. The hair on their head was a reminder of their state before God, just as the hairy goat is a reminder of our sin. It is man's place to be aware. The time of the barley harvest, the design of the barley representing hair, the tied in significance of the awareness of sin, the six measures of barley, and so much more. All of it, all of it is important in grasping the hidden treasures which are found in the book of Ruth. God uses real, tangible things to show us spiritual truths about his son, Jesus. Just imagine the wisdom of God who gave us all of these different grains and who ordained the time that these grains would come forth from the ground and who designed them with particular traits, each resembling Christ's work. As I said, barley, hair, it pictures that Christ came as a man and he dwelt among us. It's a picture of him taking on the awareness so we're aware like him in Christ. And then you have the wheat harvest, and it's a picture of the great harvest of people during the church age. He made these things so that we can see his work in them, and God ordained them before he even, you know, I mean, from just coming out of the grain. It all pictures Christ. Imagine the pomegranate, which has hundreds and hundreds of seeds. They say it's more than 600. And that in the law points to the many laws within the Torah. There's 613 individual laws within the Torah. And God uses that as an example of that. Think of the almond, which points to the duration of God's attentive care over his redemptive plans. It's the first 
thing to bud in the spring. It's the last thing to put forth its fruit at the end of the harvest season. And so it's a picture of God's redemptive plans from beginning to end. And as we saw, even the barley, which has a hairy appearance, which comes forth at the same time that his son came out of the grave. These and a trillion other things in nature have all been created and ordained to show us truths about his immense love for us as found in the giving of his son and the reconciliation which is possible because of that gift. I mean, just look to nature. Look at water, the water of life and how it pictures that. God made water so that we need it. We can't live a day without it, without starting to suffer. We can't live without Christ. He gave us rocks. They're firm. They're strong. They're immovable to picture our foundation, Jesus Christ. He gave us grapes, the grape harvest, where it's the wrath of God poured out on an unrepentant world. And yet the wine from the grapes shows the sweetness of God's mercy upon those who weren't judged in that way. We have the honey, we have milk, we have all kinds of animals, the rainbow, everything in nature that God uses in the Bible is to teach us something about Jesus Christ. The simple words, ve'yamad shesh siorim, or and measured six of barley, are far more important to this story than we otherwise may appreciate. God ensured the number and the type were included, not for us to hurriedly just read over, but to ponder and to savor when the pondering is rewarded with knowledge. And the same is true with the continuation of verse 15, and laid it on her. The six measures intended for Naomi are placed where? On Ruth. Ruth's time of labor is done, and eventually Naomi will receive the fruit of that labor as well. Every word has particular meaning, and every word shows hints of Christ and of his plan as it's being unfolded in human history. Verse 15 goes on, then she went into the city. Actually, the Hebrew here is masculine, it's not feminine. He, meaning Boaz, went into the city. Different texts read differently, either he or she, and so translators have to choose which is correct and why. The Masoretic text, the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Jewish Targums all read he, and this is certainly correct, not the word she. Even ye old King James Version blew it on this one, and they used the Masoretic text as their source. The reason for choosing she is simply because she is the one who was mentioned as receiving the barley but both of them have missions to perform. He was to go back, hers was to go back to Naomi, and his was to go where? To the gates which represent the city, and to bring this matter to a completion. In picture, only translating it he makes any sense. It was Jesus who rode into Jerusalem and accomplished the work necessary to redeem his people, and only he rose from the dead in fulfillment of that work. In type and in picture, the correct reading is he, and so off they go to their respective places for the day ahead. In his work, Contemplations, Bishop Hall beautifully summarizes this blessed night there on Boaz's threshing floor. Little old English, but try to grasp what he says because it's so touching. Boaz, instead of touching her as wanton, meaning being a, like a pervert, blesseth her as a father, encourages her as a friend, promises her as a kinsman, rewards her as a patron and sends her away laden with hopes and gifts, no less chaste, meaning he didn't touch her at all, but more happy than she came. O oh, admirable temperance, worthy the progenitor of him in whose lips and heart there was no guile. In other words, he was saying he was a worthy ancestor of Jesus Christ. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those 
who have fallen asleep, over whom many tears were shed in this veil of time, trials, and woes. For since by man came death, including you and I, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam certainly all are destined to die, even so in Christ all shall be raised to life instead. But there is an order to the resurrection call. Christ was first, the pattern for the rest when he comes. When he does, he will make a shout out to us all, and we will rise as if to the sounds of heavenly battle drums. Our second thought is, sit still, my daughter, verses 16 through 18. Verse 16, when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, is that you, my daughter? In another curious choice of wording, Naomi asks in Hebrew, mi at biti, or literally, who are you, my daughter? There is ample speculation about this as well, such as it was too dark to see, and so she asked who it was. Well, that's illogical because in the next breath, she says, my daughter. Other ideas are that she is actually asking, how have you fared? Well, that doesn't follow either because if she wanted to know how things went, she would have asked, how did it go? Rather, the pulpit commentary rightfully notes that there is something arch intended here. In other words, there is an overarching nature to the question that she asked, who are you? The question is not asking, who are you in person, but who are you in standing? Stated differently, the question is, are you the widowed Ruth, or are you the betrothed of Boaz? Who are you, my daughter? Verse 16 continues. Then she told her all that the man had done for her. The question, the answer to Naomi's question is still left open. Rather than a, I am a Boaz's betrothed, she relays the hopes discussed in the dark hours of the night now past. Boaz has made a promise. He will secure a kinsman redeemer for me, be it our close relative or be it he, I shall be redeemed. The joy of such a thought to both of them must have been absolutely immense. Just a short time earlier, and I mean you figure it in the time of their life, it was only a couple months at most, they stood on the dusty roads of Moab and they were weeping at the grim prospects of the future. And now within hours, they are ready to find out if they have security and rest and who it would be who would perform that redemption. The only question left is not if they will be redeemed, but who will do that redemption. Verse 17, and she said, these six epaws of barley he gave to me. Now the barley is presented. Though to them it was merely barley as a sign of hoped betrothal, to us it bears the significance of the completion of our work and the hopeful entrance into the rest which was anticipated since the very dawning of man, a rest which was lost to Adam and which has not yet been available until the moment that Christ came and until the moment that he came out of the grave. It is all about Jesus Christ. Verse 17 continues, For he said to me, Do not go away empty-handed to your mother-in-law. It is significant. Now think about this. It is significant that the barley passes from a Gentile to a Jew, not the other way around. Though it originally came from a Jewish man, it went through Ruth and then to Naomi. It is a Gentile who carried it until it was time to be handed to the one for who it was originally intended. Anybody? Is anybody seeing the story of Judah and Tamar here? How about the church in Israel? Just a couple words make a big difference in what God is trying to tell us. Despite his intentions to be betrothed to Ruth, if possible, he still maintained compassion for and a desire to support Naomi. Again, it's an important consideration to understanding the entire scope of what's pictured. 
because Israel is back in the land and God has cared for them for 2,000 years despite their rejection of him. And every bit of that is being pictured in this one verse that we're looking at right now. The time for the barley to pass is coming. And I believe it's coming really, really soon. Verse 18, then she said, sit still, my daughter. Naomi would know the anxiety of Ruth's heart here in her constitution at this immensely, immensely nervous moment of her life. She was probably already pacing and it would only intensify as the moments passed. And so Naomi rightfully asked her to just sit and relax until the matter, which was completely out of her control, would be settled. Verse 18 going on, until you know how the matter will turn out. In the Hebrew, Naomi's words here are ech yipol davar, how will fall word. The word davar means word, but it carries the idea of a matter or an affair here. Where the word falls is where the matter is settled. This type of terminology shows the certainty of an occurrence. A great example of this is found in Ecclesiastes chapter 11, another one of my very favorite verses in the entire Bible. And if you know R.C. Sproul, anybody? R.C. Sproul? He was converted to Christianity through this verse here. So think of the logic when you hear this. How could somebody come to Christ through this? If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves upon the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it shall lie. Kind of curious verse to come to Christ under, isn't it? When a, mat when a tree has fallen, it isn't getting up and moving. When the matter of Ruth's redemption falls, it will be once and for all time decided. And when a man breathes his last and he falls to the ground, his eternal fate is settled. That's what R.C. Sproul was thinking of. I've got choices to make in life. There is a finality in the idea of that which falls. Here in this verse, it is, who will be Ruth's redeemer? And verse 18 finishes with these words, for the man will not rest until he has concluded the matter this day. Boaz gave his assurances to Ruth. She is going to be redeemed one way or another. He gave her a token through Ruth to Naomi, and he departed at the first dawning of the morning to work out the consummation of his plans. Sounds like him coming out of that grave, doesn't it? First dawning of the morning. Naomi therefore knew with all certainty that he was intent on seeing this matter through. Having seen his actions towards Ruth in the past and his kind attitude which accompanied him, she knew that he had his heart set on her, and he had every intention of having her. But first, it had to be determined if he was the one qualified and able to bring about her redemption. Again, as we've asked several times so far in Ruth, can you see Jesus in this story? Everything so far has been carefully detailed and recorded for the sole purpose of beholding his work on our behalf. It is a story of great love and great affection, both in the immediate story, but also in the picture that it presents. Christ waited patiently for the fullness of times to come, and then he went about the business set before him in order to procure a bride for himself. He also fulfilled the law to the letter, fulfilling it completely. Thus, he embodies the law for us. In the coming chapter, we will see the only obstacle to Boaz's right to claim Naomi. We will come to understand how everything in Ruth is simply a mirror and a picture of the great plan and work which was set before Christ Jesus as he came to clear out every obstacle which could hinder him from receiving his own bride. There is a time, and I don't think it's very far off now, when we'll, we will see with our own eyes the consummation of that great plan. Christ will come for his bride and he will sweep her away to be with him forever. 
God chose this beautiful story of Ruth to show us hints of how that was made possible. If you would like to join the many souls who have called out to Christ and been redeemed by his work, let me explain to you why it's necessary and how you can join those who are even now awaiting that wondrous day when he will come for us. We are in a state which keeps us from God. It is called sin. We've talked about that through the whole uh, sermon today. Sin. We don't think about sin. And even though I talked about it, it probably didn't sink in. But you have sin in your life. That's all there is to it. You were born under Adam. He sinned. We inherited his sin. So even if you think, oh, I'm a good guy. I've never done anything wrong. Well, guess what? Adam did something wrong. He violated God's commandment and we inherited what he did. And whether you say that's fair or not is irrelevant. It might not be fair that you were born in Sarasota, Florida, or that you were born in Zimbabwe. That's irrelevant. You were born there. We were born in sin. And that has to be dealt with before we can be reconciled to God the Father. And in his great love for us, God sent his son to deal with the sin on our behalf. He came and fulfilled the law that you and I can't fulfill. And then he gave his life up in exchange for our sin. He dealt with the sin problem and he had no sin of his own. And to prove it, our sin is nailed to the cross when we put our faith in him. How do we know that? Because he came out of the grave, proving that he did not have sin. Because the wages of sin is death. Death couldn't hold him. Therefore, he had no sin of his own. So your sin, if you confess Christ as Lord, is nailed to his cross. And then you will be given the promise of eternal life through Jesus Christ by coming out of the grave some glorious day when that trumpet blows. This is the wonder and this is the marvel of Jesus Christ is that he has done everything for us. And yet we just walk around acting like it doesn't matter. It does matter. And someday when the tree has fallen, if you haven't made the choice for Christ, you will realize that it did matter. Think it through. You only get one chance at this life and you don't know when it's going to end. So if you have not called on Jesus Christ to take away your sin, do it today and you will be reconciled to God the Father forever. It will never be taken away. This is what I would ask of you and this is why I love preaching this book is because it gives us all the answers. All we have to do is accept its premise. It's the most glorious thing that we could ever, ever possess in our life is the book that tells us about our Lord and Savior. Call on Jesus. Our closing verse today comes from Matthew 11. Talk about a great verse tying it in with what we saw today. It's verses 28 through 30. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle, lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. What a great God we serve. Next week week is Ruth uh, 4, 1 through 6. We're in our last chapter of Ruth. I'm almost sorry to begin it. I've enjoyed it so much. It's called To Perpetuate the Name of Elimelech. Now, before we get into that sermon next week, I would ask you to think about who Elimelech pictures, who Malone pictures, who Killian pictures. Because if you know those three things, you will understand everything about the book of Ruth that I've tried to show you so far. If you can, in your mind, lying in bed at night, think of who is Elimelech, who is Malone, and who is Killian? Then everything else will make sense. You may not understand it all. I don't mean that you're going to just suddenly have all the insights of the world, but you'll understand the premise of the book of Ruth. All right? The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan, and he has a purpose for you. He knows your trials, your troubles, and your woes, and he is there with you through them. So cling to him. Just like Naomi clung to her mother-in-law, and she clung to the God of Israel. Cling to him. 
and let him do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay? Our poem today is called Shesh Siorim, Six Measures of Barley. So she laid his feet until morning, and she arose before one could tell another by name. Then he said, Do not let it be known as a gentle warning that the woman to the threshing floor came. Also he said, Bring the shawl that is on you and hold it. And when she held it, he measured six of barley and laid it on her. This gift he did submit. Then he, she went into the city at that hour so early. When she came to her mother-in-law at the dawning of the sun, she said, Is that you, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man for her had done, and she showed what she had brought her. And she said, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said, Do not go to your mother-in-law with hands that are empty. Then she said, Sit still, my daughter, until you know how the matter will turn out, I pray. For the man will not rest until he has concluded the matter this day. Like Ruth, whose time for rest will come soon, we have a time of rest from our labors as well, which is graciously granted to us by an act of faith. And with that, we enter our rest, as the Bible does tell. In Christ, the hope of the seventh day is here. His victory over the devil ensures that we may so partake of this marvelous gift, so precious and dear, granted to us through a decision we make. Call on Christ Jesus and your labors will end. In him there is an eternal blessing, marvelous and grand. In his presence, eternal life we will spend as he sits on the throne at his Father's right hand. Hallelujah and amen. Oh, oh, Heavenly Father, it's just so wonderful to see these things come out of your word and to know that everything is under control. Everything has got a plan and a purpose attached to it and it's all being worked out in a good way. Here we fret over all of the nasty things going on in the world and all of the things that come against us that wear us down. And yet you've got it all securely fastened in your book and it's showing us all these great things that are coming ahead for us. Lord, you know that uh, Saturdays we do, a uh, couple of us here do mission work and you know the people that struggle down there. Help us, each one of us to remember that we've got it a lot better than a lot of the rest of the world. But there is a time where everything will come into its proper place. All of the sadnesses will be behind us. All of the trials of those who have it more difficult now will be behind them. And there will be peace and there will be contentment. And there will be rest. We thank you for that wonderful rest. And we thank you that we've already entered it because of the blood of Jesus Christ. We're just waiting on the consummation of it right now. How good you are to us. How wonderfully good you are to each one of us. Thank you, O oh God. Thank you for our Lord and our Savior, Jesus. And in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we read these words. It says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And he would have blessed that bread before he gave it to his disciples. He would have said these words, Baruch ata Adonai Eloheinu, Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. And he broke it. And he said, Take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, after supper, he also took the cup. And he would have blessed us as well. He would have said, Baruch Ata Adonai Eloheinu, Melechaolam, Borei Peri Hagafen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. 
For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment upon himself, not discerning the Lord's body. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the chance to come to this table and to participate in the work of Jesus Christ our Lord. Thank you that it is a gift and that we don't have to do anything extra. It's all done by grace. And now help us to go forth and to do extra things, not because they merit anything in your eyes, but because they will glorify you. We love you. We praise you. We give you all the glory that you're due. Help us to remember that every step that we take as we come in and go out of our houses and as we set for food, as we rise from our bed and go back to our bed. And every moment in between, help us to just give you the glory that you are doing. Lord, please help each person here to travel safely today, to get home and to have a good restful night and then to uh, have a great week ahead. Bless each person here. Be with them, guide them, strengthen them. 
And may you come soon, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen.